0: out of the box radio with me your host christine Mm glasdale out of the box radio is a weekly podcast of audible ear candy dedicated to bringing a fresh perspective on this thing that we call life and each and every week we're going to be diving into the topics that matter most with lively conversations on issues such as health wellness and transformational healing all with the goal of creating a better world and becoming a happier human being I will be your tour guide for this epic adventure, and each and every week we're gonna be embarking on a journey with the ultimate goal being transformation to our highest potential. And now, let's get out of the box. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Out of the Box with Christine. I'm very happy that you tuned in today because we have a very special program on a on a topic that I am very interested in because it has happened to myself and it has also happened to my special guest. My guest today is Charles Swedrock and Charles is the group's coordinator for IANS, which stands for International Association for Near-Death Studies. He happens to also be a retired information technology specialist and going to be talking to him about near-death experiences and this organization that has been set up for people globally 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 to express what they've gone through and also for those who are who are caring for and who are family members as well of people who have gone through near-death experiences so welcome to out of the box with christine charles Swedrock.
1: hi christine thank you for this opportunity
0: Yes, I'm. Well, I'm. I'm really happy because I actually got a little bit of experience with a, a group call. We had a meeting not too long ago, and it was lovely to actually meet some other people who had experienced this. Let's talk first about the International Association for Near Death Studies. Can you give our listeners a bit of a background on how long this has been? Um, how long this has been? Uh, going on, when it was formed, and exactly who uh, are members or who are people that participate in this.
1: Okay, sure. Uh, many people are familiar with the name Raymond Moody and the book Life After Life. Kind of is given credit for coining the term near-death experience. It was kind of in vogue back then, but Raymond got uh, accolades for it in, when he published his book, and I think in 1975. Shortly thereafter, his book was a little over 100 anecdotes of people he had investigated. Some other professionals, psychiatrists, cardiologists, a couple, you know, a couple more. They um, wanted to do more in-depth studies, but the academic community back then would not publish their work. So this organization or its predecessor was formed. And uh, in order to, and has published a peer review academic journal for almost uh, 40 years now, uh, quarterly. So that was really the way to get more in-depth investigation when uh, the formal traditional community couldn't kind of deal with the topic. Uh, also shortly thereafter, say probably in the early 1980s, when we did formally uh, incorporate as ions,, um, we started having support groups, and uh, those were safe places for people to get together and share their experiences when they're kind of not able to talk about it in their family settings, or they can't tell their physician or their pastors because of the reactions, that you know, were just based on disbelief and non-support, really. So that launched us and now we're up to about 50 groups around the country and what you experienced here, I think last week, was we're actually getting ready to do online groups where people can uh, meet from all over the world and uh, share their experiences with one another.
0: And, and you had you had said something very special, which I thought was interesting, that a, quite a few people who experience near-death, ex, have near-death experiences, uh, find that they're not able to talk about it with others or they don't have much support. And it always strikes me as like so strange and funny at the same time that, I mean, what is it? There's a saying, there's only two things that there's are certain in life, death and taxes. I mean, um, we, <laughs> we everyone does experience death death it's been something that humans have ha, have experienced for well I guess ever since we've uh, been created and yet it is something that is so difficult for people to um, to talk about or at least to find even people who are are willing to listen with an open mind what what do you attribute that to do you attribute that to religion or just people's skepticism
1: well yeah you know the uh, the dis missile came from both extremes I mean so the experiencers really caught in the middle I mean the science traditional medical environment model you know was really all physical based and they couldn't deal with it and then your religious model I'm sure had issues because it seemed outside of the bounds of their uh, you know their teachings I mean often it's called dogma but I mean really I think, it's also about psychology and what if you know, fear of death is huge, but just as large in many ways is the fear of change.
0: Mm.
1: I've got a worldview that's been built up over a lifetime of experiences. I've got a busy life. I've got a family. I've got all these considerations going on. And then this sort of out of the, this world kind of uh, event drops in. And if you're an experiencer, it's a huge, um, uh, problem to assimilate that and to say, well, what I do in my life now going forward? And uh, we'll talk in a minute about really what are the indicators of an experience that separate it from hallucinations, mental illness, or, you know, aberrations of any kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, after studying it for 40 years, we can be pretty clear distinguishing between an experience and, uh, you know, other issues that happen to people psychologically
0: and you you know you boy you nailed it on the head that is one thing i don't, it doesn't matter what the subject matter is people are, when they're when they have a, a belief system that's challenged boy is really it <laughs> it's like you're asking them for you know to cut off their arm in order just to just to think outside of the box a little bit and just to kind of um open up and be be open to to hearing someone's experience um and 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 since we're talking about that too i understand too. this was um as of now this was several years ago as of the early 80s a gallup or uh, organization and near-death uh, research studies estimated that back then in the 80s some 13 million adults um had near-death experiences in the u.s alone and those were the ones that i guess that would be reported and that's only adults; those are the ones that are reported. That's not counting uh, children who's ex- who've experienced near-death um, near-death experiences. Uh, is this something that obviously that cuts across age, It cuts across age, religion, um, ethnicity. The um, the amounts of people who are at least now coming forward saying that they have had a near-death experience has has those numbers grown over the last few years?
1: Um, yeah, it comes down to definitions and that's really where we're, you know, struggling, you know, as we kind of have to invent a new language to deal with it. Um, One of the things that is, you don't have to be near death to have experiences which fall in, I'll call it this genre. Um, You know, they come, happen in traumatic situations. They happen in unusual situations. There's cases of people who were falling to what they thought was going to be their deaths, and they'll have a full blown, quote, near death experience. Uh, but they don't, you know, they're not physically compromised in any way because somehow they're rescued or they don't, you know, maybe injured, but they don't uh, die physically and then get resuscitated. They just had the experience. Mm-hmm. So, what it's initiated by, you know, is all sorts of things. We've had people that have had them happen in the shower. Because they were just thinking about some very traumatic event or whatever. And, you know, uh, some people have gotten them through meditation. And then there's a whole world of things called kundalini experiences, which is just opening another box. (laughs) So, you know, it's it's really a struggle to comprehend with a wider perspective this thing which is called near-death experience, and people kind of relate to it. Oh, their heart stopped, they stopped breathing, and then they had this, uh, you know, consciousness memory when they're revived. But it's much more than that. And yeah. I, for one, want to see us drop that boundary around near-death experience and say these are extraordinary, extraordinary metaphysical, extraordinary, you know, experiences of consciousness. And that's really what our research shows, that you can have consciousness without having a fully functional uh, physical apparatus. You know, they don't have to be in the brain, but they can be You know, it's almost like the conclusion now is that consciousness is something that the brain receives, like a radio or TV transmitter that sends and receives uh, signals and communication. And we've had people who have been blind, congenitally blind from birth, never seen a piece of light in their life who have a full-blown NDE, you know, because they – get physically compromised in some way and then are resuscitated and they describe the same thing as those who have you know seen light all their life so mm. you yeah, it's, uh, it's a phenomenon that has to be inspected with an open mind and reflective listening the best thing I can recommend is you listen to people who have these experiences you hear their sincerity We have the psychological attributes that distinguish them from hallucinations. They're very clear that these are not aberrations. I mean, there's overlap. You will find things in uh, the mental health arena that are hallucinations that overlap with these experiences, but the discriminating factors are much larger and uh, distinct.
0: I was going to say, what what are some of those differences between, uh, f- you know, something that would be hallucinatory or your imagination versus um, some of these experiences that are, in, in your in your experience, in your knowledge? Um, okay,
1: I've been um, in a very fortunate position. I've heard so many experiences. I've had extended time with experiencers because we brought them here to Arizona. They'd stay with me, and I have not just a one that, an hour and a half talk to listen to them, I get to spend hours with them in dialogue. And the biggest criteria that I think that easiest to separate the two, hallucination versus an experience experiences don't fade. The memory of it don't fade over years. Decades later, the experiencer will describe it in exactly the same detail.
0: Right, right.
1: Hallucinations fade. They're told differently. When you have the second and third iteration, you don't even know sometimes. And sometimes they fade to the point they're not even remembered. So that's one real uh, distinguishing factor. The other is After effects, there are physiological, psychological, and metaphysical changes in a person who has uh, profound experiences. And there is a scale that's rated these for 40 years. We've been measuring them, and we can kind of gauge the depth of them. And some of those are after effects. Are uh, some of the stronger experiences? Uh, People can no longer wear a battery-powered watch. It gets drained. Uh, if they're emotionally charged around electronic equipment, they can affect the equipment. They can knock down a computer, for example. There was one example, it's kind of humorous. It was a woman who uh, would walk under a photosensitive street light, and as she walked under it, it would go out, and then as she passed, it would come back on. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's, you know, that that's uh, wow. kind of a physical effect that's very uh, clearly identifiable.
0: <laughs> wow. Wow, wow. Um, I, and, I'm, and I'm curious if you, and if you feel, I'm, I, I'm asking this question, if, if putting you on the spot, but if you've had a near-death experience or um, a phenomenon a- around that, an experience, would you be willing to share that with our listeners um, today? Yeah.
1: Um, well, I'd like to share a YouTube in which I kind of discuss how I came to be where I'm at. And it includes a variety of experiences to concentrate on any one experience. And I will go into one, which is probably what I would count as my most profound. It, it, uh, when people share experiences, it's kind of like the tendency is want to focus on just that as a pivotal point. But now, here, after seven decades, I get to admit that I look back over my life and see how it was full of events that fit together to bring me here to do what I do today. And it's a much larger picture of who and what I am. And I, I covered that in a YouTube, it's called A Life Guided by Experiences, and then my name. Uh, but you just, I think, if you do a YouTube search for, a Life Guided by Experiences, the, those five words.
0: By Chuck Swedrock, and that's... Uh, yeah,
1: that, that, that really kind of covers from the, basically my birth until now, except for my NDE, which I say was just kind of a little... I bled out internally and did have a, a bit of an out-of-body and um, auditory experience. But the, the event I'd like to share with listeners, which is most powerful me for me another sign of experiences when you listen to the person when they start telling it they most they almost invariably relive it and so it can be a very traumatic thing for them to be sharing an experience mm. and you can find very good ones out there in you know <laughs> YouTube or video land but uh, you know there's also some pretty crummy ones I mean people have tried to make fun of it with mm. Um, mm. You know,
0: just, Satire. uh,
1: right. anyhow, what, what happened to me, uh, that, and I had heard about near death experiences before this event, so I kind of was aware of them, but this event happened on August 15th, 1985. And that's, again, as soon as I mention that date, it brings back the detail, uh, the details all there. Um, I had lived in a suburb of Rochester, New York. I'd been out mowing the yard. I came in and I was washing my hands at the sink and the phone rang Uh, my wife had answered and uh, said, it's for you, it's your dad, which was code for uh, my stepfather. My stepfather was my dad from the time I was five years old. And uh, actually I I have his name, Swedrock, as an adopted name. And so I just, dried my hands and took the phone and said hello. And he gave me no preparation. He just said, I said, hello. And he said, the words I heard was David killed himself. Wow. David being my youngest brother who uh, committed suicide. Wow. And I mean, you get the message in that way. There is no chance to analyze it. It was just total grief. And I broke down sobbing. I had two daughters at the time, six and nine, who were somewhere in the area. And if I kind of had preparation, maybe I would have, you know, tried to control that grief response. But in retrospect, I can say it was the right thing that they should see their father have a, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, Mm -hmm. an honest reaction like that.
0: Yes, right.
1: But I, I, you know, I just finished the call and I put it on hold except all my thoughts of guilt which is really what happens when some, someone that close to you would do something like that. And I just, what could I have done to make a difference? And I um, threw some clothes in a suitcase and jumped in the car and drove the four hours back to the family homestead, which is in Pennsylvania, and spent the week. Uh, my brother had been um, at a wedding, a friend's wedding, And he came home and he went to the gun cabinet and got a high-powered rifle and went up to his bedroom and Mm. put the muzzle under his chin. And my parents were in the uh, living room right below his bedroom. Mm. And thinking it was a backfire or something, my dad went up and opened the door and in his shock said, you know, to my mother, Dorothy, you've got to see this. And the immediate reaction is oh how awful and yet knowing my mother if she, if he had tried to keep her from the room she would have fought him thinking she could have made a difference mm-hmm. so but i mean it was graphically instantly uh you know clear they called the ambulance and they took the body to a funeral home uh, a short to a town a little ways away but this is where churches. This is what churches are for. This is a small rural community in Pennsylvania, maybe two dozen homes, a little white clapboard church. And that fan, that church poured out its hearts to our family. And before I got there in my four-hour drive, they had shown up, cleaned up the bedroom, uh, taken the furniture out and burned it. They had uh, The only thing was a bullet hole in the wall, which they'd covered up with a picture. Wow. Now, that sense of community is what churches are about. It's not beliefs. It's who we are for one another. And that's really the message of these experiences, who we are for one another in a loving context. So anyhow, what happened is through the week, I'm there just going through the motions, taking in the meals. It's going to be a closed casket service. And then we're through the internship. And then my experience happened when I got back home um, about a week later uh, I had some quiet time. Well, I called my confidant at the time was my stepmother. And she said, you need to say goodbye to your brother. And I realized other than that initial grief response, I just kind of put my own personal dealing with it on hold, except for the guilt feelings. And so I found some quiet time and we had an easy chair in the bedroom and I you know, feel the fabric of this. And every time I tell the experience, I I wasn't a practicing meditator at the time, but I just kind of reclined in the chair and closed my eyes. And I let the thought go through my mind, goodbye, David. And instantaneously, my mind was transported back to Pennsylvania, back to that neighboring town where the funeral home was, into the back of the funeral home where I had never been physically, into a casket sitting on a gurney. And I'm thrust through the side of the – this is a bit graphic, but bear with me. Mm -hmm. I'm thrust through the side of the casket into a space on the torso where there should be a face, and it's just, you know, mush. And I'm bilocating because I'm aware of my body back in that easy chair just totally – thrashing like a a fit, you know, a total seizure kind of thing from the terror, the horror of this moment. At the pinnacle, a male voice spoke into my mind. And I mean those words exactly as those, there was physically a person there a few feet away. And I heard this indelibly in my mind, a different tonal value, everything. It was as if there was a male voice there said, he's not here. And with that, there was total peace, total calm, total resolution. I'm reunified with my body, and it's like I'm totally at rest, and all trauma and tension was gone, and I'm in that kind of space that is indescribable. Mm. And certainly, processing that going forward is where I would say I lost any fear of death. I mean, it certainly raised other questions, like, "Well, wait a minute, when I'm struggling with a significant problem, they can, they or somehow they, I can get a message into my mind in plain English, and which is very comprehensible. <laughs> you know, I kind of get a little more of that, you know, when I'm, you know, when my head's up against the wall with a problem, but." That certainly changed my life from that point forward and in, uh, in a very significant way
0: and and as you said earlier, that when you look back through your life, and I think we we all we all have at some point when we look back at our lives and we really, you know think about it, um, we've had these moments, we've had these um experiences where if it's the voice, um. Uh, divine, whatever you want to call it, divine intervention. Um, I remember one time I was in college and I I had stopped at a four-way uh, stop sign uh, you know, intersection. And I did the thing as they say, you know, you look left, you look right, you look left again. If there's nothing there, then you can proceed, right? That's that's the thing. So I did that. I had stopped. I, I looked to my left, there's nothing there. I looked to my right, and there's nothing there. I looked to my left again, nothing there and as i started to hit, to push the gas pedal it was w- w- what it was exactly what you had said it, although it almost sounded it felt like as if someone was was saying it right into my ear like someone from the back seat who would leaned forward and just said it very very um, calmly but sternly and it was just stop and it was male voice and it was in one one side of my ear, so it wasn't necessarily in my head, but it was as if somebody had just leaned forward and, it, you know, in the right, uh, on my right ear just said, stop. Didn't scream stop, didn't whisper stop, just said, stop. <laughs> well, I stopped, of course, because somebody told me to. And lo and behold, this, oh, this car comes flying out of nowhere. Like, I don't even, it was flying, it was going so fast and it went right through the intersection. And I know that if I had not stopped, I would have seriously been t-boned. Probably, who Lord knows what could have happened. It would—it was not going <laughs> to be pretty, okay, Chuck. It was going to be bad. And then the question And then wait, so I'm so I'm relieved. Okay, I'm shook up, but I'm relieved. I'm like, oh my god, oh my god, I almost I died. Okay, okay. But then I said, then I got freaked out because I said, what the hell? I looked in the back of my car. I got out of my car. I didn't want to get back in my car because I thought someone was in my car that I didn't know. There was nobody in my car. I mean, there was no f- physical person in my car. Mm-hmm. But that was just one incident. And I know that there are millions and millions of people have had similar incidents, if not being in a car, um, something else, you know g- – g- just one of those things where it was just almost like the lights were almost out for you, <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you went a little closer to the edge of where maybe, you know, you needed to be. But um, I know that there's so many people that have experienced those things.
1: Well, that's what I talk about in my YouTube is, why should I have been given that intervention, let's call it? Why were you given your intervention and others aren't? Others don't get that. Right. And that's why I went into that in more, as I've had a long time to think about those questions, I've kind of been able to gather the information through various aspects that I try to share in that YouTube. It takes a while to adjust to some things are meant to be, some things aren't. And there are interventions for some situations where somebody else would have just pulled out and been creamed in that intersection.
0: Yes, And and something that you had mentioned too, and I have in my conversations with people who have had, uh, who who not just close calls, but who either were were the precipice, like right there uh, at, at possible death or imminent death. They, the experiences, they've all been varied. They've all been different, but there's kind of a little bit of a running theme um, a great, a lot of them um, have a feeling, uh, a feeling of you—not euf- euphoria. It's not even the right word, but a connection with mm-hmm. everything, a connection with—I don't know if it's the universe, if it's this plasma, this living plasma of life that we are kind of uh, like in a womb, you know, as is when we're animated um, human beings. But they all have come back, um, the ones that I've talked to, have all come back with this absolute feeling of beautiful peace and a connection. Um, I know you've spoken to so many people. Is, is that your experience as well?
1: Uh, yes, there is that. But I, I'd like to kind of draw back from it from a moment and take a broad look at this question of experience. Mm-hmm. This is where it's really come to me that when you draw a circle around something, call it an NDE, then there's people come up and say, well, are you an experiencer? And I want to say, we are all experiencers at different levels of different aspects of it. And everybody, you know, one model I use is, well, first of all, we get the uh, kind of when the experiencers come back from, quote, being, they say, resuscitated from a, a uh, cardiovascular kind of problem where they actually died physically, and they come back and they're recovering, they will often describe their experiences, but they're not really going to all be the same. And so one of the questions that comes up is, well, why don't they all go to the same place? Why don't they all have the same kinds of memories? Well, they have similar, but they can only really express their experience in the language of their culture that they have internally. And Mm -hmm. so some of them will express it religiously, uh, religious terms. Others will express it in kind of more neutral terms. And so they'll seem to be at odds initially when we try to analyze this and say, well, what's the meaning behind all this? What's the definition that we can look to to understand how this is working when their stories are so different? So that's why it's listen to them talk about it in the terms of how they live it when they describe it, but don't try to look at it in terms of analytically how does that define this superstructure or whatever you want to call it
0: oh yeah definitely not no (laughs) yeah that surrounds
1: us (laughs) Uh, because they only get a piece of it and uh, one of the things in my current role is a problem of dealing with people who want to be at war because their experience is so vivid to them they can't tolerate somebody else who describes it from a different point of view Their own experiences, so they kind of battle back and forth, and say, "Well," and I try to say, "Wait a minute, step back, and let's take a look at the broader picture." And again, that's something I try to address in that YouTube is that we all get the experiences we need, and we need all experiences as they are. Um, They might seem like a conundrum, but it really, when you think about it from a lot. I was raised in a Christian family, you know, it was an independent Bible church, basically Baptist under the covers. But when I got to be a teenager, I had questions, and they would say, well, you got to take it on faith. And because of my early childhood and all the being bounced around, it just didn't work for me. And I just went away to college and became totally the opposite, a logician. I have to... And that's why I fell in love with being in a computer world where things, ones and zeros and truth tables and everything has a, you know, a logic to it yeah. that I could deal with. So I was a great system programmer, but not a very good metaphysician at that point. And then sometime later in life, I had to put the two together. And that's how I approached this is with logic. And there is always a logic behind it that is useful for describing it and bringing things into focus. But sometimes we have to stretch our boundaries in order to get to those uh, discoveries. So two things I kind of use this model for people to think about to help their logic. The first one is think of a color. Pick any color, your favorite color. Now imagine that everything is that color. And with that, you will understand that color would lose its meaning. It would lose its being you need all the colors to give that one color definition. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it is for this thing called human life. We need all aspects of it to give any part of it definition. So if you have a certain belief system, it's all those that believe a different way to give your belief system shape. You know, it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around, but that's really the way this is, this environment works. The second model for this, and let me see if I can reconnect here, uh, is if you're going to think about having knowledge, I've met so many experiencers that said that when they were, quote, and they'll use language like the other side or when I was in that realm or whatever, I had access to all knowledge. There was no questions. I think it's a little bit like what you were saying earlier. You feel totally connected. And I've heard them say that even if they had didn't have the understanding to ask the question, they're given all knowledge to know what the question how to phrase the question and then given all knowledge to know the answer. Mm, So (laughs) (laughs) this experience called human life, they can't bring it back in and fit it inside this little physical vessel. So they can only remember the feeling of it, but they don't have all that knowledge here. And what that brought to me was the understanding that the basic design element for this thing called human life, the most core ingredient which is necessary to this is ignorance. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I said, what? Ignorance. Because without ignorance, you can have no experience of discovery. You have to not know in order then to turn the corner and there it is. You know, sometimes that discovery isn't pleasant, but whatever, all of that variety of discovery comes from not knowing and then having the experience of unfolding something. That, that's what we have here. Those experiencers who go to the deepest part of that other realm, it's not about knowledge. They can't have it here. The other thing we have here that makes it work is death. This has a time limit. Our soul doesn't. It's always is and always will be and it's always in that frame of love. But this identity I carry as Chuck Sweetrock began with the birth, began with a lot of experiences like getting my name changed, and then will end with my death. But my identity really does kind of be coterminous with that and so i have to always see myself in this frame of chuck swidrock as who i am well i've heard many experiencers talk about in the other realm they realize that there's only a fragment of our higher self that is incarnated here in this identity we call you know by our birth the death name you know so that which goes around our personality and all the other aspects of who we are in this uh, fragment of our total being. And I think that also relates to what you were describing earlier about this sense of being part of the all when you're in that sense of the experience.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. And, and I love how you, how you explained that. I won't even try and summarize it again because it was just, it was really beautiful of, of, the ignorance um, of not of not knowing and then thus having the experience and knowing that that is something special that that is something um, not every day not something that you go through necessarily every day but uh, I, I know that a lot of people who have these experiences obviously it it changes their perception I would, I would say Mm -hmm. it would change their perception of what life is. And, um, after an experience like that, it would, it would change the, maybe the way they, I don't know, the way that they perceive life or the way that they, um, act in life or, um, um, look at situations, look at the world. Do you, do you, after your experience, um, and I know you've had many experiences, but do you think that with each one that it changes you just a bit more or you think it's just something that's always been with oh, you but it's, hidden?
1: It's a lifetime of addition and uh, adding perspective. Oh, definitely. Uh, and I'm hopefully going to keep learning every day. I mean, I take this this concept of unfolding through ignorance and peeling back the layers of an onion, basically, as a model for that, as being, if you all, you know, many experiencers that I've dealt with, a lot of them in the higher depth experiences will talk about seeing future things. And there's famous stories like Daniel and Brinkley and whatever who talked about seeing like three panels, and there was one that was most likely, and then one which is possible, say, alteration we'll call it left and then uh, a right, so the, the two, the variability that could be. So the, the future that he saw, I think they eventually did an analysis saying about 80% of the visions he had in his experience of something in the future materialized and 20% didn't. So that's really saying, too, that if you always knew what was around the corner, this would be kind of a dull or much duller experience living life. Like we kind of often uh, feel, you know, stuck because we can't see what's around the corner, but it's really that not seeing around the corner, which gives us the vitality of having these experiences in life when we do peel back the layer of the onion and then react to what going around the corner revealed.
0: Mm. Do you, um, in your experience, I know we we were talking about a lot of people when they recount what happens in different time, you know, different times of their life. This feeling of the connection and um, a a bit of euphoria, um, but then there, are, I'm sure that there are those that when they experience something like this, it's like a little bit too much for them to handle, and it frightens them. Um,
1: oh, I'm glad you're talking about this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, one of the things that is very, first of all, I want to absolutely emphasize that INS as an organization has a no-party line on the interpretation of experiences. We are there to support an understanding of these experiences. We've done the research and published that, and we do education for whoever will, you know, allow us in terms of, you know, medical personnel or religious or whatever, if you allow us to talk about it. I mean, one of the things that's so sad is that a person should have to leave their church because they can't talk about an experience. Oh, that's crazy. And it's just not necessary. Once we can give the pastors and the clergy and those whoever are in the arena having to understand it, the family, the family so that they can understand this person and what they're going through. But the other aspect of what you brought up is just because you had the experiences doesn't make you all-knowing, and you don't have it all resolved. Our research shows it takes the average experiencer seven years, and that's the average profound experiencer on this scale, seven years to do what we call integrated. Now, that doesn't mean that it's a lifetime process to really integrate it. but. Integration means you're kind of balanced with one foot here and one foot there. Many people come back from the experiences, they don't want to be here. They're angry about being revived. They don't want to be back from that blissful state in which the tension of their lives was relieved. Mm. But there's a lot of good reasons for them to be back. But it takes a while to get the balance of saying, okay, I've got to adjust to being here and Sometimes there was the story of a policeman or a fireman, I'm not sure, in in one major city. He had his profound experience, and he was coming home from work, and he sees a person, a, a homeless person or something on the street, and gives away his paycheck for the, you know, to this person in need, because he's so opened up to a loving nature. Then he gets home, and he has to deal with, oh, well, a wife is not very happy that he (laughs) doesn't have the check to pay the bills now. And, you know, so it's learning how do you juggle this uh, reaction to this very profound event. Some people can't handle it. They bury it. Mm -hmm. And that integration process, seven years, doesn't start until they are able to share it and validate it. We've had a person who waited 30 years before they found that they weren't, You know, they were told to suppress it by a pastor. You told them, Uh if you didn't see Jesus, that it was from the devil, don't ever talk about it. And And they were a child. I mean, 10 or 11 years old. So for 30 years, they tried to suppress it, but they couldn't. I mean, they became alcoholic and they, you know, had a maybe dysfunctional lifestyle as they're trying to wrestle with this undeniable memory. And when they finally found an IONS group and could find the safety to start talking about it, then their integration path could start. So yeah, it's it, it needs an understanding that we can hopefully help people with. And that's where I'm really enthused to begin to talk about doing these groups online. And we've had tremendous success of people getting together online and sharing and we know it's going to be a very beneficial thing uh, for those people who, be, even those who are just interested in it and want to be connected more to understanding and knowing about it, we can do these online groups. But they can't be chat rooms. You can find chat rooms all over the place, and then you just get into debates and all. But we have a, um, a very refined process for sharing that creates the safety to share creates an understanding of what reflective listening really is. And they're peer groups, peer-to-peer groups. We're not there to give advice or heal somebody's problem. We're just there to share with one another in a way that is very beneficial and illuminating. And, uh, you know, often we find that people who have not had the experiences, one may discover they did have an experience and now they get to uncover it, or two they are transformed in the same way as the experiencers themselves without the trauma, you know, drawn to a more loving nature. Once you hear about a life review, it puts you on notice about what the effects of your behavior are on others and how it matters. A life review is an understanding oh, yeah. that implementation of that spiritually is a very powerful thing for how uh, I choose to live my life from this point forward.
0: You had mentioned life review, and I and I know our listeners are going, what, 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 what. Um, I, I know that in my own personal experience, I had um, a life review. Um, for for me, time had stopped, um, or what what I know of time stopped, <laughs> um, and I had a, a life review where um, just lots and lots of scenes just coming, kind of coming through my consciousness, and um, very rapid. Um, fire, uh, some some larger events, but most a lot of them being very everyday, average kind of things through my life I, that I, I didn't think that that would be my highlight reel. But can you tell our, can you tell our listeners um, about some uh, or what the life review, um, some of the experiences that people have had in this life review? uh, Because it seems to be quite a few people experience this. Am I correct?
1: I think statistics showed about 15% of experiencers of profound experiencers at that level will have a life review. And it varies. And it's also controlled at a higher level in that there was one woman who drowned when she was three years old. She's had a family picnic. Her doll fell in this little creek with rushing water, and she goes to reach for it, and her body was pulled under the bank, and mm. uh, then somebody, I guess, saw it and pulled her out, and uh, and interesting, this happens uh, a number of times. A stranger plows through the crowd and resuscitates her, and then afterwards, nobody can find They're
0: them. gone. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's hap- Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The intervener.
1: <laughs> the intervener. She described just <laughs> growing up with just these flashes of blonde hair floating just below the surface of the water, but no other memory of the experience. And then in uh, later in life, uh, she has a medical procedure, I think it was an ear infection or something, and they used a drug which she had a an allergic reaction to, and she had an adult experience. And in that experience, she was shown the childhood experience in full detail. And she sees, she re-experienced it as an adult, being the child, being out of her body and feeling just powerfully, you know, happy with being away from that body thing. Yeah, I saw her blonde hair floating below the surface of the water. And uh, she has this intervening guides or whatever others there, to tell her she has to go back after the man resuscitates her body. And she's no, nah, I'm not going back there. No way. <laughs> and then she's shown her older brother who's over by a tree all curled up in grief because
0: oh, he right.
1: was supposed to be watching her. And oh. she sees the realization that if she doesn't go back to her body, he's going to get in big trouble. And so she agrees to go back, but she's not allowed to remember the experience at that point in time because the logic was it would have affected the relationship between the two of them, her and her brother growing up. Right. She'd have been saying to her brother, I came back for you or whatever, you know. Right, right, so right. So as an adult, her brother was already, I think, deceased at that point, so it was you know, opened up to her in her adult experience to remember the earlier experience. Well, that's not totally a life review, but that was just remembering the experience. So why do some people remember them and others don't? Because there's larger factors in play. But the life review, as you were really just starting to describe it, and you can describe it probably very accurately, it is variable in experiences of those that haven't but typically there's three perspectives that are possible. One is you re-experience it yourself going exactly through the moment and everything you felt and who you were at the moment in time. You can then also experience it from the perspective of all other individuals involved in the uh, situation or the environment. You become them and you actually relive you from their perspective, mm-hmm. and everything you say or do and how that affected them, like in a positive or negative way, you will know exactly what that felt like from their uh, angle. And then the third perspective, and I think I can describe this from the point of view of one of the experiences that was studied early on by IANS, he had a boyhood event where he's remembering this in his life review, where he was... Young man, he's supposed to be, I don't know, 10, 12 years old. He's had the chore of mowing the yard. And it's Saturday morning, he wanted to be off playing with his friends, and his father yells at him, Go mow the, you know, go do your chore. And so he rushes through the chore, which included some weeds in the backyard where there were wildflowers his aunt asked him not to mow down. Well, he gets to them and he's just in a hurry, oh, she won't care, and he mows them down. Well, now in his life review, he recalls how he felt as a boy doing it. He f- recalled what it was like for to be his aunt who later discovered the flowers mowed down and then her quandary about, well, he wouldn't have done it on purpose. He couldn't have forgot that I wanted to use those in, he in felt a, that a, a he, project with the neighborhood kids or right. whatever. And should she confront him and all of that stuff, which he now saw her anguish and then eventually deciding not to say anything to him. And then the third perspective was he had all the details of the event. He said he could have counted the bugs in the yard. He could have been up in the tree, and seen everything of the detail down below him.
0: Yes, yes. I, I um, with my experience, without getting into the exact experience, um, seeing those little scenes, uh, those again, those really quick. It's like it was like a carousel, like a, like almost when you. When you go to a, a theme park, or or you you go to a um, carnival, carnival exactly, and they have the horses, you know, kind of going up and down, going around, and and that going around, and but at a at a much kind of I guess faster pace, with all of those things, and then it had stopped at the point where I had decided because I was asked if I was actually asked if I wanted to, to you know we, if you wanted to end my life this way this was, was this was, was how, my way out I was going to go this way and I um and I said well yeah you know I'm, I'm kind of cool with it because it's a great feeling it's a beautiful feeling <laughs> I was like well this sounds great and the location where I was at was beautiful um, but then then after the quick review of of my life in these little snippet moments then I also I got to see um, uh, my mother hearing about how how she, she I felt I was in her body. I was able to see her watching, uh, television, watching a news program, and and that's how she found out that I died. Was not not somebody calling her and saying, "Oh my goodness," and, and you know, and and preparing her for it. But she was watching the news, and then she hears about this young American dies, you know, in far off land, and uh, the pain that that would create in my mother was so overwhelming. And it was just so, and I said, oh, hell no. I was like, no, 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 I, I can't. And the, and the voice or the, uh, the the thought or the voice that came through was, are you sure? You know, are you, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, no, I'm sure. No, that that would be horrific for her to experience.
1: Yeah. And just a quick notion, uh, that's called a life preview, Mm -hmm. I mean, instead of going back in time, you went forward in time to see what alternative paths could, you know, yield.
0: What would happen from that decision? Yeah. Right. Right. And it wasn't I was like, "Mm -mm, that's not happening. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we hear that a lot. We said like the like the woman I was talking about as a young girl, she, you know, they're showing her that her brother would be, you know, in a difficult way if she didn't come back. And so, yeah, she decided to come back for, for him. And that's often, you know, how that's decided.
0: And it seems like in some, in, in some of those cases too, um, with mine included, that you're given a choice or an option. Yeah. And I find that so intriguing that you are. And I mean, that's why it changed my viewpoint of, um, uh my absolute my my perception of what death is um and my concept of of w- of what it is i still don't know ex- exactly everything that happens but i know that i don't fear it um after having that experience but um it's just interesting that so many people have that that i've talked to say that they have that moment of you know they're asked if that's if they want to go mhm or at least they see what happens. They seeing what's happens from their decision to 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 leave, um, and and what the ramifications of that are. Oh my goodness, I could talk to you forever. Um, <laughs> Chuck a uh, Swedrock, who again, folks, is from the International Association for Near Death Studies. He's the group's coordinator, and he's also I'm
1: the president. And, actually.
0: Oh, and you're the president. You're the president yeah. of the International. Wow.
1: Yeah, I, I didn't see that coming either. <laughs> but, you know, it turned the corner. And there it was. Oh <laughs> They're <on>
0: like, <laughs> we will dub you president. Uh, so if uh, Chuck, if if people want to get find out more information, they can go to the website. You want to give that out to them?
1: Oh yes. I A N D S or I N S, I International Association for Near Death Studies, the initials, I A N D S dot
0: org i a n d s dot o r g and i tell you what we'll all make sure that i put that link in um within this podcast and on youtube and i'll also put the link to your youtube video i think that would be really good because you had mentioned that before uh, your youtube video that you have um i will make sure that i put that also with this show and uh I want to encourage, uh, I definitely want to encourage people to share the show on their social media, you know, share the link uh, with, us, with, with as many people as you feel would uh, benefit from this, but thank well, yeah, you I'd so like to much. I'd put it
1: up on our website too, sure.
0: You are welcome to do that, sir. Yes, <laughs> you definitely are. I want to thank you again so much for your time and for all the amazing work you do. It's very heart-centered work that you do, and I've seen you uh, in action, so I want to thank you so very much, and and if people also want to, if they've had an experience like this and they want to be in one of the groups where they get to share that experience, they can find out that information as well at ions. dot org. Correct?
1: Yeah, we we haven't quite announced it publicly yet, but if they get in touch with us, we could make one or two available because okay. we are doing pilot meetings right now. Like okay. you attended, and they can. And, and thank you yeah. for this opportunity. It's a humble thing for me to be able to be in this position, and and to be of service in this way.
0: Well, that's why You are the perfect person to be the president of this organization because you are humble and brilliant and um, your heart is just definitely felt um, all these miles away. So thank you so much again, Chuck Swedrock. I really appreciate you and the work that your organization does. Um, Folks, again, if you want to find out more information on the International Association for Near-Death Studies, remember, it's not just about near-death experiences, but it's about all those wonderful experiences that we have as human beings and uh, the veil, that thin veil getting thinner and thinner. It's I-A-N-D-S dot You can find out more information. And as always, I want you to encourage you to share the show with as many folks as you feel uh, would benefit from it. And you can do that so easily. Until next time, I want to thank you so much for listening. And as always, remember to stay outside of that box. Bye for now.